Welcome to What's Working in Washington. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Today, what makes women great small business owners? The new face of entrepreneurial uh, success are women that are 50 and above. They've got the ability to um, juggle time, uh, manage things, provide that emotional, empathetic leadership in a small business and when times get really tough, they usually have a core of persistence and hard work. What does it take to change a company's trajectory? How does an outside professional manager take leadership of an existing company and change its culture for the better? And how easy is it to go from being senior management of a large company to the CEO of an emerging business? These are all questions that many who are interested in growing their own businesses or careers here in the D.C. region have. We have in our studio someone who is walking that walk right now. Diana Haig is CEO of RFID Global Solutions and a former senior executive at IBM and Odin Technologies. We're going to talk with her about her professional journey and some lessons that she can share for those of us who are thinking about taking the career leap of being the CEO or leader of a business they didn't start. Diana, thanks for joining us. Hey, good morning, Jonathan. Well, we're going to talk about this now. So how easy was it to go from being a senior manager of a large company to CEO of an emerging business, particularly one you didn't start yourself? Well, I'd say the first thing I noticed was the acceleration of time. Every project that I'd worked on within the context of IBM, suddenly every quarter was the equivalent to a year or two years, you know, within a larger, co you know, company. Um, second thing I noticed was the resource dearth and just the challenge of not having administrative and financial resources that I was accustomed to, you know. And then I'd say working uh, with a founding team and stepping into a company that I didn't start. Um, was an interesting navigation of, of embracing their vision and what they wanted to achieve, but looking at how do we scale this business and grow it. It's, yeah. That's very interesting to me because um, my experience as an outside investor and a board member is I'm often in a situation of trying to coach founding teams how to change how they're approaching culture. Because frankly, with a lot of businesses that are started by inbred, inward-looking founders, culture is something they really don't know how to develop. I found that joining the last two organizations I've been part of as a startup, I was embraced. I was uh, welcomed by the board, welcomed by the management team. But trying to shift a business that's been a services and a technical engineering company into one that's focused on product and building an asset that we could repeatedly sell to the marketplace was was the biggest challenge. You know, it was moving away from the um, the easy, uh, consistent revenue of each new win and the exciting win of closing a deal, yeah. you know, into a longer term time frame planning. It was. is interesting because. Uh, Products ultimately are really profitable because they sell themselves, but because they sell themselves, you don't get the dopamine hit of closing the sale. <laughs> That's exactly. You've got to invest for the long haul and sort of look at that future product that you're building for a market. But the interesting thing is, as you work with clients, you get requirements and you can shape your product and they're funding it and it's real-time build. Um, but then you get trapped into uh, building those features that are uniquely appropriate for that customer at a time. And, you're, and you might miss the other 20 you know, features on your wish list that you don't have time to build. Yeah, that <laughs> is really the challenge of uh, being a service-oriented business. If you're good, you want to do what the client wants and you end up building what the client wants. <laughs> People will talk about culture. As a CEO, what kind of tactics, give us an example, the kind of tactics you use to change a culture. I assume it's not just pizza parties and, and uh, clown hats. <laughs> no, we started with uh, bringing in uh, outside advisors to host 
our uh, January kickoff sessions and really um, using those external voices to uh, ground us in what it takes to really be on top of the market, really focus on technology trends and do broad surveys. We'd invite some of our clients in trying to set up small user groups to uh, get that frame of reference to be a broader scale and, and look at us within the context of a market. So um, really bringing in outside viewpoints was the first thing that we did to try to focus on where do we aim this company. Did you do things like change compensation or promotional practices to reinforce values also? I've tried to bring lightweight versions of large corporate practices into a smaller business. Uh, one thing that you don't have in a small company often is a defined career trajectory. So for folks in the D.C. area that might be accustomed to every two years having a promotional opportunity, um, we uh, defined seven levels of op opportunity you know, within our different career uh, divisions. So that gave people a sense that they were building towards something they could take on more responsibility. Mm. And we've always told everyone, um, as much as you can embrace and you can take on, you could be leading a very significant business here and you will learn more and faster in a small business um, then you may get the chance in a larger organization. So that means that um, when you come into a smaller organization as a professional manager, the tools that are most relevant are, sounds to me, are more myth-building and sense-making than uh, hard uh, metrics. I think being able to tell a story and craft that vision and get everybody to embrace it and get on board with you and be excited about the opportunity is something quite significant. Well, interesting to me to to hear that because again that that's very much my sense that a CEO of an emerging business is much more of a teacher and a coach than a uh, head teacher is that's how we say and sometimes chief psychologist <laughs> <laughs> absolutely so the psychology of of changing the culture dovetails very well with to my mind the psychology of managing technological change things are moving so fast how do you change in organizations while at the same time the technological needs of your clients are changed at the same time? This particular sector, so we work in the wireless industry. We focus on asset management solutions using a range of technologies. And when I stepped out of IBM, it's been almost 10 years, um, this was a wild west. There's just unfettered um, growth and innovation around product sets. There was no standardized spectrum. Um, many competing technologies, and it's like the mobile industry. You've got to stay abreast of all of the different players in the marketplace. Who's likely to uh, take the lead, look at some of the early adopters and what technologies they're embracing, and then be part of standards organizations and help set and drive that, that technology agenda. So it is um, very challenging to uh, now, as the market has moved from a focus on, I'd say, radio frequency and early wireless technologies to the Internet of Things and focusing on IoT, keeping it on top of all of the sensors and the new offerings and all the consumer-oriented offerings coming out, the Alexas and all of the products from Google and Microsoft, and just um, being aware of how they influence our customers' perception of what they want to buy and what our product needs to include. I think that is really a significant lesson that many entrepreneurs don't focus on, which is that there is generally a core technology trend. And for a time, people thought it was RFID. Now it's Internet of Things with 5G. But if you don't understand that, you're not going to win. And more to the point, if you're a smaller business, you're not going to set that agenda. The landscape is littered with many promising startups with really strong technology and great teams, but they didn't find that intersection of product market fit or they didn't find the early uh, customers that would pull them forward um, to give them that runway that they needed. And so my, my first goal when I took on 
this position was I wanted to be the last woman standing in this industry. You know, and I've sudden, I've been coached subsequently. No, you want to be this the second to last. <laughs> you want to be bought by the last. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, short one before I let you go. In light of what the last nine years of your life have been building this company, would you recommend this career path to anybody listening? You know, I've given that question quite a bit of thought. And an interesting article came out last week, and it said uh, the new face of entrepreneurial uh, success are women that are 50 and above. They've got the ability to um, juggle time, uh, manage things, provide that emotional, empathetic leadership in a small business. And when times get really tough, they usually have a core of persistence and hard work. So I would say it's it's proven to be a, a great career path for me, and I hope other people follow. Here, here. Well, thank you very much for joining us. That was Diana Haig from RFID Global Solutions. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And now, non-billable consult with legal expert Andrew Sherman. So you think you need or want an angel investor for your business. The first question you should always ask yourself is why? Do you really need the money or is it more that you need a sounding board or both? Understand that most angel investors invest for both financial and non-financial reasons and really come in a wide variety of shapes and sizes. Some angels are focused on leveraging their industry experience. Some angels are looking for something more personal. Perhaps you remind them of themselves when they were your age or the son or daughter that they never had or wish that they had had. Understand that when you go to pitch an angel who already is substantially wealthy, your opening line should not be, invest in me, I'll make you rich. Well, son, I'm already rich. So once you get past the dating aspect of finding your angel, the next thing is how will the deal be structured? They're going to expect participation in the upside, protection on the downside, and probably some form of anti-dilution protection for future rounds. How much control will they have? How much control do you expect them to have? How much assistance can they provide? How, what are your expectations as to their availability? These are all questions that would manifest themselves essentially in the angel investor term sheet. The term sheets will not be as oppressive as a classic venture capital term sheet, but don't expect the angel to be completely relaxed about the types of communication or report or controls that they're going to have. Ultimately, these are sophisticated people and sophisticated investors, and they're going to want to know that you're in it with them for the long term in a mutually beneficial relationship. So does your business need an angel? Well, it makes sense to dip your toe in the water, see who's out there, and structure a deal that works for both of you. That was your non-billable consult with legal expert Andrew Sherman. Thank you to our sponsor, Tedco. Tedco invests in early stage tech and life science companies. It provides resources and connections that companies need to thrive in Maryland. Tedco's mission is to discover, invest in, and help build great companies. Learn more at www.tedco.md. And a thank you to our sponsor, JLL. JLL is the leading commercial real estate service company within the Washington, D.C. metro area, serving the technology, government contracting, and professional services industries. JLL's strategy-led approach and expert implementation results in cost-effective and flexible real estate solutions that help their clients succeed and grow. Thank you to Speakerbox Communications. Speakerbox is your team for meeting the unique demands of the technology sector, crystallizing complex ideas, targeting highly intelligent buyers, and moving at the speed of tech. Since 1997, they've given voice 
through many of our industry's top thinkers and performers. Check them out at speakerboxpr.com. And thanks to our sponsor, Tandem Product Academy. If you're looking to grow a software technology business and you're past your first five employees or your first half a million dollars of revenue, their free educational program will teach you how to grow your business. Supported by a broad group of our region's leading business organizations and local governments, Tandem Product Academy is free to participants. Learn more at tandeminnovate.com. Thank you for joining us on What's Working in Washington. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan, online writer Barbara Ulrich, music provided by two D.C. region bands, Two Car Living Room, and The Sunbathers. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for listening. See you next time.